0: You may have a seat. Well, so good to see you all here today. And uh, those of you joining us online, glad that you've joined us. If you're our guest here, my name is Roby. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, so glad that you're here. If you're our guest, we love seeing new faces. If you're joining us online for the first time, so glad that you've joined us. Um, and uh, we'd love to get to know you a little bit better so leave your information there um, and the, there's a place you can get connected online also if you're here there's guest services and um, this this weekend is a great weekend for you to be here we are kicking off a new series and actually next week we have a party. we're going to have a party here if you're able to come in person join us for our party next weekend super excited about that but uh, today we are kicking off a new series we're going to have some fun with this series it's called how to not wreck your life. Um, Something I think that we all would like to avoid. And so we're going to be talking about things, you know, there's so many things in life that are unpredictable, but there's some things that we can actually have control over in our lives. And so we're going to target those things as we're working through this particular part of scripture and ask uh, God to to, um, bring those things to life and to light into our lives and and uh, pursue after those and make sure that we are, we are following after him in a way that we're not walking into trouble. And so excited that you've joined us as we're kicking this series off. And so what I'd like to do is we're going into this time of Bible study, I'd like to just ask God, I'd just like to go into a moment of prayer and ask God to speak through uh, this time together. So let's, let's pray together as we go into this, uh, this passage together. Lord, we we thank you for your word. And we thank you that you're the type of God that has seemed fit to leave us a source of truth. And especially in our society, it's in our present day, it's so hard to find a place that we know is speaking truth, a source of information that we can trust. And Lord, your scripture is is where we run. Thank you for that. Lord, I ask that you would speak through that in each one of our lives. You know the journey each one of us is on. You see us. And so we open our hearts for you to work through your scripture in our lives. And we lift all this up in Jesus' name, Amen. So I am not a big fan of scary movies. Some of you here probably like scary movies. Um, I, I don't understand uh, why. I have seen some scary movies in my day, but you know when I am looking to like watch a movie, I'm looking to like for like an escape of the maybe the stress of the week or the anxiety of the week. And when I watch a scary movie about halfway through, what I feel is stress, anxiety, panic, terror, okay? And I hit this point in the middle of a scary movie, like, why have I done this to myself? This is what I was trying to escape, okay? And by the end of the movie, like, I can't go to sleep at night. I'm, like, looking around, like, you know, I'm, I'm kind of freaked out. I got to have all the lights on, all right? And so, I'm like, man, I, I don't know why I've done this to myself yet again, okay? Some of you are, are like me, and you say, look, I, I'm not a scary movie fan. I want to see hands if you say like, I am not a scary movie fan. That's a good, good portion of you, because you're rational human beings, okay? So I'm um, glad that we can get some solidarity here, okay? But there's this point in the scary movies I have seen in my life, there's one commonality that the writers write into it. It's that some of the main characters have a habit, and especially the victims, of doing absolutely brainless things. Okay, so for example, let's say there is a string of terrible murders in a small town. You'll find inevitably there'll be like a group of the main character saying, despite the fact that people have been violently murdered and they haven't caught the murderer, let's go in that abandoned barn over there and look around. Okay, and you, you know what I'm talking about? Like they do stupid things and, and it brings this feeling, okay? They start to walk into this abandoned barn or abandoned building and I'm thinking I wouldn't go in there on a normal day, okay? Let alone if there's a murderer about, okay? So the, they're going to walk in there and as they're walking into the barn and looking around with their flashlight because they never turn the lights on, okay? They're like looking around, okay? You have a feeling inside, Okay? and your feeling is, please don't go in there. Please don't go in there. You you know know that feeling I'm talking about? It's this feeling where you're saying to yourself, I know this is going to go very badly. Okay. And sometimes you're like, I can't even look. I can't even look at this. Some of you are like, that. I want to see hands. If you're like, I don't, I don't look at the screen. I can't even, I hide my eyes. Okay. See, you know what it's like. You're like, I can't even watch this. All right. I, I wanted to conjure up that emotion that you may feel in those moments when you're anticipating something going very, very bad with these, these characters in this movie. Because I want to take you to a part in the Bible where the author is writing a letter and the emotion he has as he's writing this letter is, I can't even look. The emotion he has is, please don't go in there. Like, please, I, I know if you go any further, it's going to go so badly, Now you're saying, okay, like what, I mean, what's happening? Like who are these people that he's writing? And there is an original context. There's a particular group of people he's writing. But since it's in the Bible and it's been preserved for us, ultimately we are part of that audience. So that means this biblical author who's been inspired by God to write this down is warning some of us who are reading this. That that means there's things, there may be things in our lives where we are walking towards an abandoned building or an abandoned barn or someplace very, very scary, and he's saying, please don't go any further. I can't even watch. This is going to talk about one place and one way we can avoid wrecking our lives. And I want to show you what this says because the chances are This may describe some of us or may describe a part of maybe all of our lives that we can avoid. I want to take you to the book of Jude. If you've been uh, journeying with us through the last, uh, through the spring, you know this is a book that we have been studying lately. um, And uh, a, a passage that we're also going to continue studying uh, in, this, in this series and then continue um, a, a little bit more after this series. But I want to take you to Jude chapter 11. Jude is a short letter in the, towards the end of the New Testament that is packed with some very, very helpful things. And I want to take, take a look at verse 11 together. <clears throat> Here's what it says. Woe to them. For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. Now he just referenced three guys. We're going to pause there for a second. He just referenced three guys from the beginning of the Old Testament that are notorious bad guys. Cain, Balaam, and Korah. They are all happened in different generations. They, each of their stories are all three told in the first few books of the Bible. And they're so notorious that their stories are then repeated throughout the rest of, or they're at least referenced throughout the rest of the Bible. These are bad guys. And what he's saying is that there's a cer- certain group of people that he's writing about, Jude is saying, there's a certain group of people that are acting like these notorious bad guys. But more than that, it's not just some of them are acting like one, others the other. He's saying there's some, and they're acting like all three. It's like the trifecta. They, they represent all three, Cain, Balaam, and Korah. Now, Cain is the one we're, we're going to zero in on here in, in a few minutes. But he's saying he's, they act like all three. Okay, who's this them? Like, what is the them that he's talking about? Well, he's writing to a church, So this them is not bad people out there. He's talking to people inside the church that are walking in the pattern of these three bad guys. In fact, he's in just a moment, he's going to refer to them as hidden reefs. Now, I want you to imagine, you've probably been on a boat at some point in your life. Maybe you've been out on the intercoastal or out on, on um, a Biscayne Bay or something like that. Uh, I, you've been on a boat, but I want you to imagine being in a boat in antiquity, in ancient times. And our modern boats, almost all of them are equipped with some type of sonar where you can see what's coming underwater. You can see the uh, ocean floor. But if you are in an ancient boat, you don't have that. And so one thing that would be very terrifying is the idea of a hidden reef where you're just going along and all of a sudden there's, the water looks great, it looks blue, it looks inviting, and all of a sudden your boat just crashes on a reef. Now an ancient boat is going to be a wooden boat. So ancient wooden boat versus reef, not going to go well. If you all of a sudden just out of nowhere run aground on a hidden reef then the boats are gone or you're just hoping you survive and you you swim to shore or somebody finds you. You're just trying not not to drown. Now, here's what he says. This group of people within the church that he's writing, he says this group of people, they are the hidden reefs. He's not saying they have hidden reefs in their life. He's saying they are the hidden reef that is causing damage to their church. Now, you're listening to this, your temptation might be like, whoa, like, who are the people in here? Like, who's the the hidden reef? Is it that guy over there? I mean, it looks a little shady. I bet it's that guy. He's the hidden reef. Okay. But I want to go back to the very first words that he says. He says, woe to them. Now, the word woe, this particular word woe is obviously different from the word we use. Like, you almost get sideswiped by a car and you go, whoa. Okay, it was a close call. Not that woe. This is a, a word that we don't really use in our modern context. It is a biblical word, and he is pronouncing a woe over them. You say, well, what is that? It is the exact opposite of pronouncing a blessing. If someone pronounces a blessing, then they're hoping or wishing or praying for good to come on your life. A woe is a type of curse. It's not like you're cursing them hoping bad things happen, a woe is a warning, please stop, or bad things are going to happen. So in other words, a woe that he's pronouncing on this group of people is Jude's way of saying, please don't go in there. I can't look. This is going to be so bad. If you keep going, this is going to go so badly. So here's the, the challenge for us. The challenge for us is to see this passage and to not hear it for somebody else and not say, I wonder who the hidden reefs are, but it's to say, first and foremost, I don't want to be a hidden reef. I don't want that in my life. You know, sometimes you may hear a message and you share it on to your friends. That's great. You should. I hope you do that. Um, but I hope that the posture of your heart, and the posture of our hearts when we share it, is this impacted my life, and I hope it, it's, it impacts you. Rather than I don't need this, but I'm pretty sure you need this. So I'm hoping this transfers transforms your life, because you know as we think about it, God is he's really capable of getting who he wants in the room. There's never a weekend where God's like. Wait, this is who showed up? These people are fine. It's just all their friends that needed to hear this. So I hope that they send this on. He knows who he wants to hear in the room. So if he's brought us here or he's brought you this message and you're watching it, assume that he's saying, I've got some stuff I want to speak into your life about and be be ready to receive it and thank God for it. Here's what he says. I, I want to walk this through. He already talked about three notorious bad guys. I'm going to read through this entire section of scripture that we're going to be looking at through this series. And here's what I want you to see. Three bad guys. He's then going to talk about six natural phenomenon. And then he's going to talk about three character flaws, and he's just going to like rapid fire throw all of these out in this kind of dog pile on this group of people he's talking about, and you'll see that there's this crescendo as he's getting towards the end of his letter. So let's pick it up in verse 11 again. He says, woe to them, for they walk in the way of Cain, abandoning themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs, At your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds, Feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept away along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all uh, and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. Whew. That is scorching. And what you see is... Jude using rhetoric here. You see he's like building momentum. You see he's like you know both barrels going. I mean he is just piling on as he's crescendoing this this letter. He, he's talked about these three bad guys. Now he's talked about these six natural phenomenon. He talked about hidden reefs. He talked about self feeding shepherds. He talked about waterless clouds. He says these people are like fruitless, dead, uprooted trees. He says they're like wild waves. He says they're like wandering stars. And then he says these three flaws. Here's the basic three things that they're facing. He says, first, they're grumblers. Second, they're ruled by their flesh. And third, they just use people for their own gain. That's what people amount to for them. And what he says in here, in the middle there, he talks about there's basically, there's judgment waiting for them. Remember that one verse in the middle there where it's talking about like basically, he says the word ungodly like four times. He says they're ungodly and they're ungodly ways and God's gonna punish them for their ungodly and all the ungodly. He just says it over and over and over. What is he saying? He's saying there's judgment coming for these that are ungodly. He says there's some in their midst that are so lost Remember, he's he's not talking about people out there. He's talking about people in the church. He's saying some are so far lost that they don't even realize that they're not saved from judgment. They're not saved. And so he's, he's calling them out. He's like, oh, the signpost, this woe, this warning, please don't continue in here. Because it's going to bring destruction into your life. You say, okay, he, he, he's saying not to wreck our lives. I mean, what does that mean? So here's what I want to do. I, I just, for today, let's just take one part of that. Let's just take the story of Cain. Let's just take one of them. I want to tell you the story of Cain, Cain and Abel. We're going to go Genesis 4. I'm just going to read you a couple verses. I want you to see this story. Cain and Abel are the sons of Adam and Eve. So they're some of the first people on earth. Let me just read you this story. Here's how this goes. Genesis 4 verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. All right. Sounds pretty good. Cain seems like a good guy. I thought he was a notorious bad guy, but he's bringing an offering to the Lord. So he's in some kind of worship service. Okay, that doesn't seem bad. That starts off pretty good. Let's keep going. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. Okay, so Cain seems like he's a farmer. Abel seems like he's got herds, maybe goats or sheep or cattle. And Abel brings an offering also, um, and God accepts it. But Abel's offering is described a little different. Let's see how this plays out. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Whoa, yikes. That went a direction I wasn't expecting. I mean, one minute, Cain is... Cain is in a worship service. The next minute, like, he's out in a field killing his brother. Like, that's a long way to go in just a couple verses. What's going on here, Cain? Uh, Cain has a harvest, has some crops, brings, them to, brings some of them to the Lord, says, here's an offering, Lord. That seems, um, that seems great. What's wrong with that? Well, the way the text plays out is it, it shows us the difference between Cain and Abel's offerings, and it reveals, then, Cain's heart. What does it say about Abel? Abel brought um, some from his flock and brought it to the Lord, but it says two things specifically about Abel's offering. First, it was the firstborn of his flocks. It was the first of his flocks. Now, it's one thing to bring um, some of the harvest, but man, when you bring the first, that's risky. I mean, what if he brought the first? Uh, And gave it to the Lord of cattle or sheep or goats. He brought the first. And what if that turned out to be the only? That's risky. It's risky to be like, Lord, I I know that that you provided this. So I'm going to give it to you because I know I'm in your hands. See, for able to bring what was first to God is a demonstration of his reliance on God. He, what he could have done is said, okay, God, I'm going to bring you some, but let me just first and just make sure I have enough sheep. I've got some goals. I've got some plans. Let me just see how many lambs I get or, or goats or cattle. Let me just see how much I got. And then when I, what I feel like is a safe amount, I'll, I'll give to you. But see, that's what this offering, this offering of generosity, that's what generosity is designed to do. One of the things that's supposed to work inside our hearts is it reveals where our dependence is on. Is it faith in God who provides? Is it dependence on God who provides? Or is it first and foremost, let me just rely on my own ability to discern what's a safe amount. No, giving first was an act of able to to be able to know, no, I'm trusting you to provide because why? God is the one who provides. He's demonstrating his dependence. Why? He is dependent. That is the reality of every person with a herd everywhere on the earth for all time. We're dependent on God. And so Abel's offering is an opportunity to demonstrate his dependence on God. But that's not the only thing it says about Abel's offering. Abel's offering is not just the the first. Abel's offering is also, he brought the, the fat pieces is what it says. In other words, he brought the best He brought first and he brought the best. That's another thing that it does in his heart. Because if he says, look, I'll give you this, but it's not the best because I'm saving the best for something over here, God. That something over here is clearly what he loves more than God. But what Abel does by bringing first is he's relying on God and demonstrating his dependence on God. And by bringing his best, it shows what he loves first, that's something that God is cultivating in Abel and something that his offering is using to demonstrate in, in his life. He's giving, the, he's giving the first and the best. That is in contrast to what Cain brought. Cain brought an offering and it obviously wasn't the first and obviously wasn't the best. We say, well, I mean, still, that's still something. I mean, isn't that good? Well, there's a lot of reasons that are not good that someone could bring an offering before the Lord like Cain. Maybe Cain came out of guilt. Oh, I know Abel's going to show up. He always brings the first to the best, so I, gotta, I don't want to look dumb, so I'm going to bring something. Maybe it's less about his worship before the Lord and more about how he wants to appear. Uh, maybe it's just he feels guilty not doing it. Or maybe he's like, okay, I've got this whole harvest here and man, that's the barley harvest and I got the wheat harvest coming up and I really want a good wheat harvest. So I'm going to give, okay, now that I see what I got with the barley, I'm going to give a little bit of that because God, I'm hoping that you bless the wheat over here. So maybe it's not a demonstration of dependence. It's not saying, God, I love you first. It's actually saying, God, I love this first and I'm hoping you bless this. So here's a little bit. See, obviously what God sees in Cain is his heart's not in the right place. And so he, he accepts Abel's offering and doesn't accept Cain's offering. He wants Cain to learn. He wants his heart to be cultivated. And so watch what happens because here's what I want you to see. The warning about Cain is not just the sin of Cain. It actually says they've fallen into the way of Cain, there's a path that Cain takes here, and I want you to see what happens. God says, no, Cain, that's not right. You don't have it right yet. And what's Cain's reaction? He's angry, and his face falls. He's got his face up towards heaven, looking towards God, and now it's towards earth. He's angry. He's like, I don't want anything to do with you, God. Fine. See if I bring anything back to you next time. And he walks, he walks away. Well, then what happens? He's started down a path. God speaks to Cain. He says, Cain, don't you see that I'm trying to speak into your life? He says, sin is crouching at your door, Cain. I'm trying to spare you for what sin does. Cain, I'm using this lesson of your your offerings. I'm using this lesson of your generosity. I'm trying to spare you. I'm bringing this into your life. Because if your dependence is on yourself or on your harvest or on your resources, Cain, you are making your resources a God. And those resources are not going to protect you. They will fail you. And so I'm trying to help your heart rely and find security only in me. Cain, if you don't bring your best and you put something before God, put something ahead of God, you're spending it on that. He's saying, Cain, I'm trying to spare you from desiring something more than God because whatever you desire more than God will fade and break. And he's saying, I'm trying to spare you from that. I'm trying to change your heart because that path brings destruction. God holds him accountable. He gets mad. His face turns away. God speaks and calls him out and says, Cain, I'm trying to protect you here. And so what does Cain do? It says he talks to Abel. Well, that's a good sign. Hey, Abel, look, I need to grow in this area. And um, look, could, could we just meet, have coffee? Can you speak into my life? Because uh, God's warned me and I don't want to go down this path. And I, I, don't, I, I want him to work on my heart. And I don't like where this is going. And so, Abel, can you help me? No, that's not what he does. He says, uh, Abel, can you meet me in that field over there? And he kills Abel, cuts him down, and God says, later, the blood, Abel's blood in the field is crying out before me. Even God warns him, and what does God God warns Cain. What does Cain do? Now, instead of going to Abel for help, he kills him. If we kept reading, we'd see that God then tells him the consequences for his sin. And what does Cain then do? God, you're right. I've messed up. I'm going to change course. Will you just, he throws himself, does he throw himself at the mercy and grace of God? Please, God, I'm so sorry. Help me get better. No, what does he do? He says, I can't believe it, God. The punishment you're bringing on me is too hard. It's too much. It's unfair. I'm the victim. See, here's what Jude is saying. He's saying there's those in in their midst that are on the path of Cain. They've got something that they want to do or want to be in their hearts. And despite God's continual warning and correcting, they won't listen. He says they followed in the way of Cain. He says they're like wild waves. I don't know if you've ever heard like a... um like a noisemaker, like a soothing app that has like the sound of crashing waves, okay? And some of you may, maybe you sleep at night to the sound of crashing waves, okay? There's something that's rhythmic about it, okay? You hear like the seagulls and you just hear the waves crashing on the shore back and forth. Or maybe you go sit on the beach and you're in your lawn chair with your eyes closed and you feel the warmth of the sun and just the sound of the waves over and over. There's a rhythm and an order to the waves. There's actually a predictability to the waves. But have you ever seen a wave that is going against the grain. It's like going against the current. It's a, it's a wave that's not going with the natural flow. It's going back against it. And what happens? It like crashes into the other waves. It sends foam and spray up into the air. And that wave, by not going with the natural course, is, is causing that collision. He's saying, there's some in your midst that are not following after the natural course that God is calling you to. There's, they're not following after the way and, and the current that God wants them to be on. And instead, they're going their own current and they're, and they're crashing up. And that spray, that foam is the destruction in their life. That foam is the shame they're bringing in their life. He says they're like wild waves. He says they're like wandering stars. And I want you to imagine you're one of the ancients, and from your perspective, the stars move in a predictable pattern in the sky. But you see these other what you think is stars, but maybe it's a comet or a planet, but and it's not moving predictably. It's moving in and around and across the sky and backwards, and it's not that same predictable pattern. And he says, there are some of you that are like a, a wandering star going against the, the way that God has called you to go, and it's go, it's going to trail out, you're going to trail out and be alone in gloomy darkness. He's saying, don't stay on that path, please. It's bringing destruction into your life. He says, ultimately, he says, there's a character trait. He says, those people are, they're just ruled by their flesh. They want to do what they want to do. They don't want to change. They don't want to course correct. They just want to stay on that path. And if anyone tries to get them to correct... They follow in the way of Cain. They don't want to do it. So what's this passage to do with us? Like how do we take this into our lives? Well, first of all, we don't listen to this for someone else. We listen to it for ourselves. Like, how is this in my life? And really, like, how do I avoid wrecking my life? There's a simple truth in this text comes down to this. Do I follow like Cain how I handle God's warnings in my life? In other words, do I curse correction or do I crave correction? Do I curse correction in my life or do I crave correction in my life? So so if, if I curse correction, what does that look like? Oh, well, when there's correction in my life, man, I hate it, I avoid it, and I punish those who bring it into my life. Man, when there's correction in my life, man, I hate it. Someone tries to speak in my life, hey, who do you think you are? I I don't want to listen to this. I don't have to listen to this. I'm out of here. I hate it. I don't want anything to do with it. It's always a, any correction, no matter how helpful it might be, no matter how badly I need it, no matter how true it may be, if there's correction into it, I assume it's a bad conversation because it makes me uncomfortable. I assume, oh, this is bad. I, I don't want this in my life. I hate it. If I curse correction, then I, I avoid it. I avoid those who might have the courage to bring it into my life. And I might say, like, I'm done. I'm done. I'm not listening to this person anymore. I'm walking out of this conversation. I don't want to do this. I don't want this person in my life. I'm gonna get some distance from them. No, I don't want this in my life. I avoid it. In fact, I um, I may say, oh, I can't believe another another boss that's, that's speaking this into my life. Well, I just have this. Must have just had this string of bosses that all have something against me, or they must all be threatened by me. But I'm I'm out of here. I quit. If I, if, I, if I curse correction, then I hate it, I avoid it, and I punish those who bring it to me. I, I shoot the messenger. Just like Cain, I do violence. What do you mean? I don't do violence to anyone. Well, sometimes what happens if someone curses correction, when someone tries to bring a truth to them, what happens is they get big and intimidating to try and back them off. I can't believe you do that they, they yell and shout, they wave their fists, they get in their faces. I can't believe that you would do this. How dare you after all the things that I've done and you not you know what I'm going through? I can't believe you do this and they, and they intimidate or they guilt or they shame and they just pour that down on someone and the louder the other person gets, they get even louder and they're going to stand up and be intimidating until that person backs down or maybe if they, if they don't intimidate, maybe they just They just sever and hack and cleave the relationship apart. Well, if that's the way it's going to be, then I'm done with this relationship. And now I'm going to freeze you out. I'm going to not talk to you anymore. I'm going to move away. And suddenly I'm going to be busy and I'm not going to be available to be your friend anymore. So I'm just going to peel away. I'm not going to have this relationship in my life. Or maybe some, they actually just do verbal violence. Someone tries to bring correction in their life. They call them names. They get vicious. They take cheap shots. They just—they want to verbally hack that person to pieces so that that person feels so small and so cut in half that they wouldn't dare ever bringing something up again. If I curse correction, then I hate it, I avoid it, and I punish those who bring it. But if I crave correction... It's all the opposite. I appreciate it. I pursue it. And I reward those who bring it into my life. I mean, craving correction. I mean, no one thinks correction feels good. But I can appreciate it. I can appreciate that no matter who the person is that's bringing me this truth in my life, no matter what their motives are for bringing it into my life, I can appreciate that I can take that nugget and it's an opportunity to grow. I can actually lean in and say, oh, this might help me get better. I can appreciate what's happening. I can say, hey, actually as painful this is, this is a needed conversation. I need it and I can lean in. In fact, I can actually pursue it. I can say to a coworker, hey, um, I don't know if you, you, you were there at that presentation I gave, and I just felt like it could have been better. I, I want to ask, would you mind just giving me some feedback? How could I do that better? Or um, maybe to a spouse, hey, man, I feel like I didn't handle that right with the kids. Or I feel like I've been hard on them lately. Have you seen that? Could you speak into my life? Because I want to be a better mom and a better dad, and I know that I need your feedback. Or maybe to a spouse. Look, I, I don't, I want to be a better husband or a better wife. I don't, I don't want to be like that with you, and I'm sorry. And as hard as it is, can you just share with me what I can do to be a better husband or be a better wife to you? And I, I'm just going to receive that from you. I'm not going to even respond today. I just need to let that digest because I, I know it's going to be hard for me to hear. I, I pursue it, I ask for it, and then I reward those who give it to me. So I say, hey, look, I know that took courage to share that. It wasn't easy to hear, but thank you. I want you to know I, I need that in my life, and I don't want you to be afraid to bring that back into my life again. You've shown me that I can trust you. Thank you. You say, look, man, I don't know anybody who craves correction like that. I mean, that's that's a little far, okay? I get the whole cane thing, but... Uh, trust me, I'm not going to go murdering anyone out in a field. You know, that whole correction thing, uh, craving it, I don't know. Well, let me just tell you how Proverbs puts it. Okay, this is how Proverbs says it. I'm just going to read it to you. Proverbs 12.1, whoever loves discipline, loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. Geez, Proverbs, thanks a lot, man. That's it. Proverbs, I'm not listening to you anymore because you're too mean about it. Could you say it a little nicer? I mean, if you want me to listen, Proverbs, you're going to have to say it nicer and more gently to me. No, Proverbs just lays it out there. It says, look, it's just a matter of wisdom or stupidity. Correction makes me better. Hating it is stupidity. That'd be dumb. So... Do I curse correction or do I crave it? Remember, this is for us. This is to look inside our own hearts. So, can we, let's do this. Let's take a a correction audit in our life for a second. Let's start at work. I mean, when was the, the last time that you took correction? And I want you to think did you take correction well? Maybe it was from a boss. Boss gives you some feedback, gives you some correction. How did you walk out of that office? Obviously, either way, it's not fun, but you walk out of the office, and was your mind full of cursing towards the boss? Oh, that's just, it's typical. I mean, what he corrected me on, he or she's done, I mean, like a hundred times, and now I do it, and they call me on a terrible boss. I need to find, the problem is the boss. Or did I say, you know what? Yeah, I don't know that they're perfect, and they're definitely not a perfect leader, but hey, if that makes me better, It's a gift. Or or let's flip it. How about you're the boss and it was an employee who reports to you that gave you feedback that was hard to hear. Wait a minute, you're saying someone who reports to me and they're critiquing me on how I lead? No, 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 that's not the way it is. If I'm the leader, then I give the feedback. They don't give me feedback. Well, maybe in the culture that you're setting but if you want to grow as a leader, you can read a book who has no idea that author, he or she has no idea about what you really are like as a, as a leader, and you can pick and choose what you want, or you can have a coach who uh, you hire, which can be a great thing, but they're, uh, they also want to make sure they remain hired by you, um, or you could get the feedback from the people who have to suffer your leadership day in and day out. They're going to give you the most, I have the most honest view of your feedback. What if you created a culture of those who have the freedom to give you feedback and you reward them for doing it? Hey, thank you. You made me a better leader today. I know that took a lot of guts to do that, but I like that. That, That's helpful feedback. How about, let's move a little closer to home. How about an extended family, Your, your parents, your siblings? Other family that you have in your life, uh, let's take an audit of correction. Maybe um, in your life, have, have you received correction and feedback well? Or has the standard been like, how dare you speak into my life like that? Mind your own business. This is my life. I'm going to do my life. And the fact that you said that, you're going to get the cold shoulder from me for a couple months or a couple years. How do we crave feedback or do we curse feedback? How about moving into our homes? How about if you, you have kids? When was the last time I sat down before my kids and said, hey, um, I didn't handle that so good. I need to own that and I need to apologize to you. I'm sorry. I need to ask for your forgiveness. Will you forgive me? I don't want to handle that. And I'd like to know how that made you feel. Well, I'm wet, yeah, but I got grown kids. Probably even more important. Because now they see you with an adult mind and adult eyes. Okay, yeah, but mine are like really, really little. And I mean, seriously, I mean, kids apologize to parents. Parents don't apologize to kids. And that's the, exactly the type of adult and parent that we would be raising if we kept that mentality. What a powerful thing to go before a child and say, um, you need to know that I'm sorry I did not handle that well. What kind of a incredible adult are you raising they see that. And by the way, what an incredible picture of the gospel you're showing them because the gospel is not that you are perfect and earned heaven. The gospel is that you're flawed and you need the grace of Jesus to save you. Our, 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 those people, or everyone around us, they know that we're not perfect. So when they are trying to help and speak that out, probably in an imperfect way, it's a gift. How about in our marriages? Sometimes the hardest place to hear correction is from our spouse. But man, that is one of the core purposes of marriage. He's placed you with someone that he's making two imperfect people into one. It's the ultimate iron sharpens iron. He's taking you and he's taking that person and he's placing you together so that you can grow together, sharpen each other. So here's what that means He is intending to use your spouse. He will use your husband. He will use your wife. That's why he put you together. He will use that person. To to sharpen you in your life. But our culture's view of marriage is, yeah, I got married, don't try to change me. You knew this is how I was when you married me, so why are you saying this to me? Don't try and change me, this is just who I am. But what if God wants to change you? What if God is saying, no, I'm not going to leave you on that path. I've got a, a path for you, but you going on that path leads to gloomy darkness. You going on that path is going to crash and send the, the debris of those collisions in your life all over. That path that you're on is just staying on it until it's going to lead to destruction. I'm trying to stop that, and I've put someone in your life who's a witness to your life, knows your strengths and your weaknesses, and they're two imperfect people, and I'm, I'm designed it that way so you can grow. So let's audit our marriages. How do we take feedback from our marriages. How about our friendships? When was the last time you had a conversation with a friend where you sat down and said, hey, I'm I'm sorry I hurt you. I need to apologize for that. I want to be better. I don't know. It's a pretty deep friendship. I don't really ever do that. It may mean that the pattern of your friendships is it only stays at a shallow level they're shallow and they're short because when there's friction or there's a collision it's just too easy to just drift away rather than push through because you're two imperfect people and when you grow together and go on a journey together with another imperfect person there's going to need to be correction that's why God brings people into our lives how about your church Sometimes people go to church and as long as they hear a sermon that makes them feel comfortable or aligns with everything they've previously thought before they walk in, as long as they hear a sermon that makes them feel good and reinforces who they already are, they're happy. But the moment they hear something that stretches them or challenges them or makes them uncomfortable, they leave until they find a place that'll preach a sermon that just reinforces who they already are. Please don't do that. Please don't curse correction. Crave it. Because it's God speaking into your life. If you've felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit on how you handle correction, then here's what the challenge would be. And it's it's hard. Confess it before the Lord. And then confess it to the loved one you've hurt with your inability or unwillingness to receive correction. Go to that spouse Go to that child, go to that friend, go to that coworker, and say, I've not been good at receiving correction I'm sorry. Say, I don't know that I could do that. But do you see how fundamentally that correction will begin training you to humble yourself and receive correction? Will you take that bold step? This passage tells us that it's trying to say, don't go in there. Don't have a pattern of cursing correction, but crave it but it says that there are some that are even in the midst of the church that don't even know Jesus as their savior. They're, they've not yet been saved from judgment. And maybe you say, how do I know if I'm one of those? Because I, I want you to walk out of here today. I want you to finish watching this message and know 100% for certain that you've been saved for eternity. How would you know? Well, the story of Cain and Abel helps us see Abel and Cain, they both bring offerings before the Lord. And that's fundamentally what we do in, when it comes to religion. We bring our lives before God and we say, here's my life. Is it enough for acceptance? Is it enough? Have I done enough to get to heaven? And most people, they, they bring their, their life before God and they say, look, God, look, I, you know I'm not super religious, but I try hard and I'm not a terribly wicked person. So I think that's enough. I'm a pretty good person. I think that's enough. You'll accept me into heaven. Others bring their life as an offering and they say, God, okay, I'm very religious. I, I grew up at church. I've always been a Christian. I was baptized. I, maybe you even served, maybe even a person of influence at your church. And you say, look, I, I, I've got my, look, here's my Christianity. See, I, I've got all that. And they offer it to God. But see, here's the problem in, in that equation. All of us are Cain. We bring imperfect sacrifices to God. And we bring it to God, and he says, "Your life is not enough. there's sin in your life." And then there's Abel, who brings a perfect sacrifice before God, and God accepts it, and there's really only one true Abel, and it was Jesus Christ. His life was perfect. He was God in the flesh. He lives a perfect life. And like what happened to Abel is Abel had a perfect offering, and Abel was accepted. But if you're Cain, you need something greater than that. You need a greater Abel, someone who can help you. What happened is the greater Abel, Jesus Christ, came to earth and what did we as Cain do? We killed him. But you know what? God says, I hear his blood crying out to me. His life became a sacrifice. For the canes of the world, which are you and me. Jesus, a better able, doesn't need a sacrifice for himself, so his life becomes a sacrifice for us. What you need is not to look at your life and bring that offering. What you need is you need the greater able. You just need to bring Jesus before God. It's not your Christianity that saves you. It's just Jesus. And what he did. Just accept that free gift of salvation through Jesus today. Let me lead you in a prayer. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? If that's you, I want to lead you in this prayer. If you want to put your faith in Jesus today and you say, look, I I want to know for sure when I walk out of here that I'm saved from judgment, I'm saved for eternity in heaven, then just Put your faith in Jesus. His blood is a sacrifice for you. Just receive this gift. Just silently in your, wherever you're at, if you're here or watching online, just silently make this your prayer to God. Just say, God, just repeat these words to God. God, thank you for saving me. I don't have enough to save myself. I need the sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus. So I offer, I don't have anything to offer, so I thank you that Jesus, you are my offering. I believe that you died, and I believe that you rose again, and I believe that alone is my salvation. And now I surrender my life to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, if that was your prayer just now, or if you're watching online or you're here, I want you to grab your cell phone. Here's what I want you to do. If that was your prayer, I want you to go to your, your browser on your phone and go to cityrev.org faith. What we wanna do is we wanna send you a Bible. We wanna celebrate with you, let you know what these next steps are. That's gonna be our gift to you. And so go on your phone to cityrev.org faith. If you're watching online, you can go to cityrev.org faith. You can just click that link there. Um, in the comments. You you can also, uh, if you're here, you can go to guest services. We've got a Bible for you. We just want to celebrate with you and let you know the next steps on this journey. Church, we're going to close with a song where we acknowledge that even when it's difficult, even when it's hard, even when it's challenging, He's at work. That He's got a way he's, He's making for us. Even when no one else has a way, even when we can't see it, He's making a way for us. We can always know he's so good, he's so loving, he's at work in our lives and we can trust that. Let's declare that together. Would you stand with me as we close with this song?